Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. Welcome to part two of the conversation about the Lost Battalion with Robert Laplander. We will continue the story of the Lost Battalion leading up to its eventual relief and discuss Whittlesey's leadership and tragic fate. So when we ended last time, Cherami had taken his famous flight. Tell us now about the next days and the eventual relief of the Lost Battalion. Once the artillery lifted, um, and they counted up everything. They found that they had lost 30 killed and wounded to our own fire. They really couldn't lose those men because they were, they were down in strength. By the end of the event, they found that they had lost 72% in that ravine in five days. On the fifth, the next day, an airplane flew over and dropped a package. This was the first attempt at resupply from the air for them. Um, somebody behind the lines had decided, you know, we got to get something to these guys. They're going to be short food and they're going to be short ammunition. So they started running relays from the 50th Aero Squadron over the, the ravine to drop packages to them. Nobody had ever done this before, so they didn't really know what they were doing, um, but they were determined to try. Some of the packages got close. Some of them were quite a ways away when they were dropped. None of them actually got on the mark. The 50th Aero Squadron, the flyers, knew that they were in that ravine. They knew about where, but they didn't know exactly where. Because flying over the forest, one section of forest, pretty much looks like the next section of forest. Uh, more importantly, flyers uh, don't understand what the ground pounders were up against. And to a flyer's mind, why would you dig into the side of the hill? That's silly. You would dig in on the bottom where it's easy and where you can get good cover. Actually, the better cover's in the side of the hill. So they didn't realize, first, that they were dug into a side, the side of the hill. Second, these guys could not be seen, because if they could be seen by the air, they could be seen by the Germans. They didn't want to be seen. There was men that were assigned in units. They carried signal panels. These are big white cloth panels that they would lay on the ground and, in different configurations, told a flyer flying over them what they needed or what they were trying to communicate. And in the 308th, in the unit that was in there, that signalman's name was Jim Larney, Private James Larney. When the first plane flew over on the 5th, Major Whittlesey asked him if he had the signal panels out. And he said, no, I don't, because I didn't want the Germans to notice anything. So we'll see if you can get a panel out to show them where we are. And he did, but the flyers never saw it. It was too foggy. They were flying too high. The next day, they started flying more relays in. One of the first ones to go in was, the pilot's name was Harold Gettler. He was from Chicago. And his backseater was a guy named Erwin Bleckley, who was from Wichita. They flew down in the ravine and realized that the only way that they were going to find these guys is by sight. So they had to get low. So they came in at about 400 feet, which is really low for plane. And they started to take massive amounts of fire from the Germans. The Germans unloaded everything they had on them. And then they started having engine trouble. So they decided that they needed to get the hell out of there. And as they were pulling out of the ravine, 
Bleckley thought he saw something off on the side of the hill. And when they landed, he discussed it with Gettler. He's, he was he was sure he had seen something. What that something was, we don't really know. Uh, it was never recorded what he thought he saw, whether it was a uniform or a signal panel or a towel or something. But their plane was so shot up and had so many engine problems that they couldn't go back. Meanwhile, other planes are flying back and forth over that ravine. A couple of them were shot down. The, the, the crews lived, but the fire was getting heavier and worse. And Gettler and Bleckley came up with the idea, okay, if we're not positive where they are, let's find out where they're not. So they decided that what they would do was fly back and forth over the ravine and let the Germans shoot at them. And then Blackley would mark on his map where the hotspots were, where the fire came from. And by process of elimination, they would know exactly where they needed to drop packages for these guys. It was a gutsy plan. Um, their squadron commander, he realized they only had at best a 50-50 chance. And they were determined to do this. So he let them go in a borrowed plane. Um, they came in that ravine that, that day so low that the lips of the ravine on either side were above their top wing, uh, which means they were coming in only at about 150 or 200 feet. They were very low, and the Germans unloaded everything they had at them. And before they could really do anything good, uh, Gettler was hit in the head by a machine gun bullet. And all of the pilots had taught their backseaters how to fly with the dual gear so that in case something like that happened, they could at least get them down. And Bleckley immediately took control of the plane, got them out of the ravine, and was heading home when what we believe happened is that Gettler's body slumped forward against the control stick, and they were seen to plunge straight into the ground. Bleckley died in an ambulance on the way to a field hospital after that, and Gettler was dead when he hit the ground. Both of them were awarded the Medal of Honor for what they did. Meanwhile, back in the ravine, the Germans had gathered up all these packages that the flyers were dropping and were opening them up and hollering down the hillside to these guys, the, the English speakers, what was in the packages and taunting them. And the doughboys at the bottom there were just about out of everything. They, they had very little left to give. When the Germans came in on the right flank in the afternoon of the 6th with two flamethrowers and one man went tearing across the hillside yelling that, that the liquid fire was coming and little C yelled back at him, well, you better get over there and do something about it. And they stood up and they, they took it and they fought the Germans back. But for the first time, they attacked. And one of the officers later said that it was like a controlled riot. These guys got up out of their holes and started to give chase to the Germans and they didn't care anymore whether they were killed or wounded or whatever they didn't care um they were screaming and hollering and crying and throwing everything they had at them they drove them off and then they stumbled back into their position and collapsed the next day on the 7th in the morning off on the left flank there were a bunch of men that they'd seen the packages drop into the into the the reeds at the bottom of the ravine, but they didn't think the Germans had gotten one of those packages. So they decided that they would go out without orders and they would try to get this package. So there were nine of them and the Germans ambushed them and killed five of them. 
or killed four of them and captured the other five. The least wounded was a guy by the name of Lowell Hollingshead. He was from Mount Sterling, Ohio. And the German commander had had word from his superiors that they were going to pull out. They were going to need to pull out that afternoon. And the only black mark on that German unit's record was this impudent band of Americans that they just couldn't get rid of that had gotten through their lines. And the intelligence officer in that unit, the 254th Regiment, was a fellow by the name of Heinrich Prinz, Fritz Prinz. He had lived in Seattle for 12 years before the war, so he understood Americans. And he decided that they were going to, if they couldn't beat them militarily before they left, they would try to get them to surrender. So he wrote a surrender letter and asked Hollingshead, will you take this back to your commander? Look, you guys are in a hopeless position. There's no way out. You've held out for five days. Nobody can say you didn't try. And Hollingshead thought about it for a while. He would, this was, first of all, they had deserted and he knew it. And then carrying a message in to the Germans from, uh, to the Americans from the Germans was collaboration. And he could be shot for both of those. But Hollingshead eventually agreed, you know what? I'll take it back. And, uh, they released him off the right flank and he came in with a, a white flag that the Germans had given him. And they bandaged up his leg. He'd been shot in the knee and they bandaged up his leg. And he came limping in and one of the sentries called him to a halt and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm Private Hollingshead from Company H and I have a message for the major. And they brought him over to Whittlesey and Whittlesey read the message. And then he handed it to McMurtry, his second in command. And at that time, Nelson Holderman from Company K on the right flank, he, he came limping up and he says, what's going on? And they showed him the message and uh, he smiled. He looked up at him and he smiled. And McMurtry said, we got him beat. They're asking us to quit. We got him beat. And uh, Whittlesey looked over at Hollingshead and he said, you had no permission to leave your position. You get back there. And then he ordered... Uh, he ordered Larney to bring in the signal panels. He didn't want anything white showing on that hillside, nothing white at all. And then he told everybody, you better get ready because what's coming next is going to be bad. He knew it because they were not going to surrender. When word got around that hillside, the Germans had asked them to surrender. The air above them was blue with curses. They told the Germans exactly what they could do with their surrender letter and how far and where they could stick it. And about 4.30 that afternoon, the Germans let them have it. They came in with everything. And for the next three hours, that battle raged. And the Germans came in again off the right flank with flamethrowers. This time, there were four of them. And once again, the Doughboys got up out of their holes and pushed them back. They were driving them back. And the officers had to do very little commanding. Um but they they used everything they had, and they finally drove them off. And it was about it was about quarter after seven that night when when the the battle fell off, darkness had fallen, everybody had gone back to the position, and that was it. They had nothing left. There was virtually no ammunition left. Uh, they had out of the nine original machine guns, they had two that were still working. Each one had about six seconds worth of fire left. There were no hand grenades, almost no rifle ammunition. They were sharpening their bayonets on pieces of limestone. And a lot of them were, were laying down in their holes crying because they, they had fought all that time. And this was going to be it. If the Germans came in one more time, 
they would walk right over that hillside and they could hear them moving in the trees around them. They knew they were coming, but it wasn't the Germans coming. It was the Germans pulling out. Uh, their orders had finally come through. They had to evacuate that area. Farther off to the right, there was there was a lot of heavy activity with the 1st Division and the uh, 82nd Division had come in to help and they were pushing the line against the right side of the forest and the line was rolling up. So the Germans had no no choice but pull out. And it was about 7.30 that night when a sentry came running into Whittlesey and he said, Major, there's a captain so-and-so down on the road here at the bottom and he wants to talk to you. And Whittlesey was exhausted. He was at, at his end and he said, all right. And he told one of his runners to come with him and the runner looked at him and says, is it safe on the road now? And Whittlesey said, well, I guess so. So they walked down there and McMurtry was sitting in the hole by himself now, rubbing his wounded leg. And he thought, Captain, there's only two captains here, and I'm one of them. And the other one is Holderman sitting right over there, and he's wounded. Who's down on the road? Then he thought, it's got to be relief. So they went down there, and it turned out that elements of the 307th from Company B had broken through on the right flank, had pushed forward, and they'd come up. And when McMurtry came over, he saw Whittlesey standing amongst, amongst a group of soldiers with a big giant sandwich in his hand. And he stumped up and he said, give me a bite of that for Christ's sake. And that was the relief. They, uh, they came in that night. It was very quiet. The, the officer who was in charge of Company B that brought them in said that they could smell them a quarter mile away. They walked onto that hillside. These are hardened combat troops that walked onto that hillside and then walked back out of the perimeter throwing up. They'd never seen anything like it. There were bodies and body parts all over the place, pools of blood. There there was entrails hanging in trees. The hillside was a wreck. And the one one guy said that the worst thing, though, was the shocky yellow-toothed grin of the survivors. He said you couldn't look at them. You couldn't look at them. They weren't even there anymore. And they begged them to stay in the holes with them that night, but they wouldn't do it. They couldn't do it. They set up a perimeter around it. And the next day when the sun came up and they were able to, to take stock of what had happened and get these guys cleaned up and get them some food, there were 194 survivors left. Wow. Now, there will be several medals of honor related to this lost battalion. Whittlesey will be one of the recipients and I've heard it said that his leadership style was mother hen. Can you give us your analysis of his leadership during this whole situation? It, it's referred to as, as, as mother hen syndrome, mama hen syndrome. A mother hen keeps her chicks close until they learn something and they can be trusted to go out and do things on their own without getting killed, um, without having predators come after them. They need to learn. In the army, when you become a battalion commander, you have people to do that for you. Your your platoon leaders, your company commanders, they're the ones that you have to rely on to take care of their men. Whittlesey, he didn't realize that. He understood the concept of it, but as he went in, the longer they fought in that forest, the more he felt responsible, directly responsible for these. It's my orders that are putting these men out there. It's my orders that are getting these guys killed. So. He he felt personally responsible. He took 
all of that to heart. He didn't delegate as much as he should have. And when they pulled onto that hillside, a perfect it's a perfect example of what was going through his mind on the psychosis that he was being able and starting to suffer in the fact that they packed almost 700 men into a position that was only 300 meters by 100 meters big. That's a lot of flesh in one small area. Anything that fell on that hillside was guaranteed to find flesh. Um, and he never realized it. None of them really realized what they were doing. All they knew is we need to keep it together. We need to keep our guys together. We need to maintain local control. Local control is something that platoon leaders and company commanders do, not something that battalion commanders do. But they all said, everybody that was in there that survived said the same thing. They said, we stuck it because he did. We held out because he did. Whittlesey was completely indifferent to shellfire. He walked around in the middle of, of artillery barrages with his hands behind his back like nothing was going on. He was a classic example of somebody who realized the minute he put his, his boot on the battlefield, he was dead. And that was the only way that he was going to be able to effectively do his job is if he, he, if he stopped worrying about himself, stopped worrying about going home or surviving, just do the job. And he, he of course, he was surprised by shell fire. You know, a shell goes off and you didn't know it was coming. Of course, you're going to duck. But for the most part, he walked around that hillside bolt upright. Everybody else is cowering in holes, not him. It looked to them like he was just out for a stroll. And every day he visited his positions, he chatted with the guys, he would make recommendations on how to improve their cover, he tried to buck up their courage. Inside, the turmoil in him was unreal. McMurtry caught him one night, curled up in the bottom of his hole, asleep and crying. Is crying asleep. Um, but the only time that he ever let on that there was a possibility that they might not survive was when he saw Jim Larney writing in his diary. You were not supposed to keep a diary at the front because if it was captured, it would give the Germans all kinds of information. Um, Larney had been keeping one nonetheless. And when Whittlesey saw him doing it rather than confiscate it, he looked at him and he said, Keep it up. It'll make a good record for after. The only part that he left out is in case we don't get out of here. But it was the only time that he ever showed any inclination that they might not survive. Um, his leadership was solid the whole time. A tragic coda to the story of the lost battalion, though, is Whittlesey's suicide in 1921. Can you put this into context for us? Whittlesey came home. And he knew they were going to give him the Medal of Honor. He was the first man from the First World War to be awarded the Medal of Honor. He got it December 25th, 1918. And he understood that it wasn't for any one thing that he did. It was not that he charged a machine gun position or captured 100 prisoners or anything. It was, it was because he held out a position that allowed them to break the line where they were. And he said it himself. He said, I wear this for everybody that was there. They couldn't decorate everybody. In his mind, they all deserved it, except for him. And as a matter of fact, when they got out of that and the reporters started coming at him the next day after they were relieved, he saw them coming and he stood up. And the first thing he said to him is, don't write about me, write about these men. And that's the attitude that he took. 
So when he came home, it was all about his soldiers. It was all about making sure that those men weren't forgotten. But that was a double-edged sword because he was suffering horribly from PTSD, which nobody understood at the time. And the guys that came home that were suffering from it would come to him for help. And it began to to really wear on him, along with the, the newspapers. They wouldn't leave him alone. And all they ever wanted to hear about is what happened in those five days. That's all they ever wanted to hear about. He didn't want to talk about it. He wanted to forget about it. Um, but that's all they ever wanted to hear. And then he started talking um, talking about his socialist ideas and how we had to welcome Germany back into the fold and all had to be forgiven. That was not a popular opinion. Nobody wanted to hear that from him. Then the wives and the, the, the widows and the mothers started to visit who wanted to know what had happened to their sons or to their husbands and had they suffered, had it you know been a quick death and couldn't he tell them something and he couldn't tell them the truth. He couldn't tell them what really happened over there and how they had really died, you know. So he he told them what they wanted to hear. You know, he he didn't suffer any pain. Bullshit. He laid there for three days screaming before he finally died. But he could he couldn't say those things. So he had to internalize it. The nightmares were consistent and growing by 1921. His health was failing. That gassing that he had took on the valve had a direct effect. Um the number one killer in America in the 1920s was tuberculosis. And there was a whole host of other things that went along with it uh, that they would class as a form of tuberculosis. Anything respiratory related, they were apt to call it tuberculosis. And the guys that had come home from the war that had been gassed, that couldn't breathe, that had problems like that, um, they referred to it as gas-related tuberculosis. They were rotting from the inside out. Because once that that gas, that mustard or phosgene got in your system, it didn't leave. And there was nothing they could do about it. Gas was the Agent Orange of World War One, And so these guys would get surgeries and, you know, they'd do everything they could, but there was no curing it. Whittlesey had not sought any medical attention for it for a couple of years. By, the 19, by 1921, he had a racking cough that stayed with him all the time. He was losing weight. The PTSD was was overwhelming. The newspapers just wouldn't leave him alone. He was desperately unhappy. And there were two things that were the last straw. One was the burial of the unknown soldier. November 11th, 1921, he was one of the honorary pallbearers. And McMurtry, as a Medal of Honor man, too, was with him. And they, he sat like a stone through the whole thing. And he turned to McMurtry at one point and he said, I shouldn't have come here. He said, I can't help but think that that's one of my men there. I'll have nightmares again tonight. I'll hear the wounded screaming. I shouldn't have come here. And yet, the next day when they left, they went to Atlantic City and had a good time. And he seemed to be in much better spirits. And then there was Thanksgiving. And he spent Thanksgiving with his best friend's family. And he was in, in wonderful spirits. He played with their baby. Her name was Patricia. As a matter of fact, she just died a couple of years ago. and he. He gave the, the baby some hairpins, and she had them right until she died. And his friend's wife remarked, well, Charles, you seem very gay. And he says, I feel better than I have in a long time. Then the next day, he went to work, and uh, he, he filled out some paperwork, and he did what he was supposed to do. He had been on stage two days before with Marshall Foch, 
at the Hippodrome in New York trying to raise money for the Red Cross Fund. And they had trotted out all these guys on stage that were missing limbs and missing eyes and stuff like that. And he had to sit through the among them, seeing the wreckage of war. And on that Friday, he had gone in and bought a ticket on a liner to go to uh, Havana, Cuba. And he didn't tell anybody. And that Saturday morning, he got up and he had breakfast at the rooming house that he stayed at. And he paid his, his rent for the next month, gave it to his landlady. And he said, you better cash this right away. I'm going away for a little while. I'm tired. And he got on the ship and everybody knew who he was. And for once, he didn't hide it. For once, he didn't, he didn't try to hide anything. They asked him questions and he, he told them the truth. He had dinner at the captain's table. The only request that he made of anybody is he wanted to know the outcome of the Army-Navy game. And then after dinner, he went into the saloon and he sat with a bunch of people and he talked about the war, answered their questions. Nobody noticed anything different about him. About 11.30, he got up and he excused himself and he walked out the door and that was the last anybody saw of him. He ended up jumping over the side of the ship. The next day, when they went into his stateroom, they found letters lined up on the bed that he had written days ahead of time to everybody, to his family. And uh, the only one that has ever come to light was to his best friend. And he said, I'm sorry, I have to wish this on you, but I need you to be the executor of my will. Uh, and when they looked in his desk at work for the things that he was doing, he had left a message that said, these are the cases I'm working on. This is where they need to go and stuff. And he says, I won't return. His body was never found. There was rumors for years afterwards that he had hidden on the ship and got off in Havana and lived his life out, or that he'd come back to Boston and lived under an assumed name. All they are is rumors. Um, not, none of that is true. He had spared his family the circus of a funeral with a body, and he was quickly forgotten after that by everybody except the men that had been there. In 1938, they started the Lost Battalion Survivors Association. And it was chaired by George McMurtry, who paid for it for the next 30 years. And they ended in 1968 when there was only a handful of the guys who were still alive. And most of them weren't coming anymore because they were too old and tired. As near as we can figure, the last one died in 1984. And with him went you know, the last living members. Now, the last individual that was associated with the Lost Battalion was actually the last African-American doughboy who died just a few years back. His name was Moses Hardy, and he was in Company E of the 805th Pioneer Infantry Regiment. And he is the one, he was in that unit that moved the bodies from the hillside to the Meuse-Argonne Cemetery. So you refer to the Lost Battalion as America's World War I epic. Any final thoughts on that? It really is the quintessential story of America in the war. The unit, the 77th Division, was a very cosmopolitan unit. They had a lot of immigrants. There were 42 different languages and dialects spoken in the 77th Division alone. It's called the Metropolitan Division because uh, they were from New York. New York is, you know, arguably the capital of everything. You know, kind of, it was very symbolistic of America. It always has been. And then you had these guys that they were the draft army. They weren't regular army. They weren't National Guard. They were drafted soldiers. They went overseas to do a job, and they fought together against an enemy that nobody thought could really be beat. They were city boys that went into a forest and fought in the forest. They had taken a whole bunch of replacements in beforehand, 
before they went into the Argonne, and those replacements fit in well. They were all from the Midwest and the Southwest and you know, a bunch of cowboys. And then you have this this stick to it of this, this idea that they were just not going to give up. There's no way you're going to win. We're going to stick on this hillside right to the end. There's no way. This is this is what America is. You know, they showed the Germans, you're not going to beat us. Um, and the newspapers were already writing stories about them at home before they even got out of there. So they, they were heroes even before they got home. Seven medals of honor handed out for that one event. And it became the most overreported story of America's participation in the war. So it's it really it really sets a pace along with, you know, the, the Sam Woodfill story and the John Barkley story and the Sergeant York story. These are the tales that if you, it was the 20s or 30s, you'd be hearing everybody talking about, you know, it, it really made the world war. Well, thank you very much, sir, for joining us today. That was really very interesting. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.